I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for tuning into an interview with Jody Sparger. Jody is a settler of Nordic German heritage, living and working on the unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsewata peoples. Jody is a farmer, furniture mover, pastor, and catalyzer for justice and healing between the church and indigenous peoples in Canada. The pathway into her current work at Healing at the Wounding Place came largely out of her experiences with planting and pastoring God's House of Many Faces, a church in the downtown east side of Vancouver that squatted in borrowed spaces, met outside whenever weather permitted, and was formed around Indigenous people who made up a large portion of the church. Impacts of residential schools and the systemic racism that still marks Canada's relationship with Indigenous people were evident in the day-to-day lives of church and community members. Currently, Jody is leading the work of healing at the Wounding Place based out of Grandview Calvary Baptist Church, looking to engage people of faith and Indigenous communities in walking into whole, healing, and just relationships. Healing has begun in Indigenous communities across Canada. The question remains whether the church, one of the primary wounding places, can become a place of healing for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people alike. So we had a great conversation with Jody, and um, what, one thing I, I want to say is like, what is happening at Grandview Calvary Baptist Church? I, Alana, when I went on my book tour, I was in Cincinnati, and I'm hanging out with these uh, these Eucharistic farmers, they called themselves. <laughs> They're living in this old nunnery in this dilapidated part of uh, Cincinnati and they're they're farming on abandoned lots and and have this little uh, vegetable operation and this like free pizza night in the neighborhood that's just amazing and and they're young people that came there from Grandview Calvary Baptist <laughs> Church in Vancouver. Wow. <laughs> and then and then just last week I was um I was talking with my friend Tim Otto who we've had on the podcast uh, before and. I, uh, he was talking to me about this this network of intentional Christian communities called the the Nurturing Communities Network that has uh, every everything in there from the Bruderhof to to the Catholic Worker, um, and their one Canadian presence there is Grandview Calvary Baptist Church, <laughs> <laughs> and I just like judging by the name, like I don't think I would ever like for me like the grand view at calvary like <laughs> yeah. these like these words for me they're just so bloated that i i would just never think that something really exciting and interesting is happening at a at a place with this name but but clearly it's the case so let's not judge books by their covers um <laughs> and and apropos uh calvary alana you have a song called the way of the cross that you thought spoke particularly to uh, to the work that Jody has been up to. Just just tell us about that song and, and kind of the connections that you draw with with the song and Jody's work. Well, um, so that song, it's, I mean, the verses really allude to this sort of pan cultural universal teaching that roots 
far back into ancient um, ways of seeing the world, um, which is that um, that we're connected, and so you know the web of life. The um, and so you know these simple lines: "I am in need." When you are in need, um, mm. if I'm in Christ, I'm in it all. It's this. It's this idea that sort of overlaps with. Um, teaching around the world, what we do to one aspect, we do to another aspect, and in turn to ourselves. And so, to claim to make this claim that we're in Christ is very loaded. And in a in mm-hmm. a world of sort of um, Platonic separation, which is how we see the world, it's a it's almost kind of a joke to say that we're in Christ. <laughs> so. I really saw that this this song certainly is a it's coming from like a Christian perspective, but that you know perhaps that this um, this Christian perspective could be in some ways metaphorical, and how Jody is coming alongside and seeing the connectivity and realizing you know just in in our conversation with her about you know, this sort of unconscious uh, hubris that we have that, um, yeah, we're connected if you cross over into our threshold, over our threshold. Um, But what Mm. does it mean to connect um, and to, um, you know, there's a hubris in in hospitality sometimes. (laughs) And Mm. um, what does it mean to receive hospitality um, from from people who are not... um, from the same tradition and that um, are giving us hospitality and love. What does that look like? And so it's just, it's one of those things where it, there's a, there's almost a play on words and it weaves a web. And I thought it, I thought it worked for Jody's work. Terrific. So we want to thank our listeners again for engaging with and supporting this podcast. You can listen on our website at theferment.ca slash podcast. You can listen on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, or the podcatcher of your choice. Um, please uh, take the time and uh, and go to iTunes and rate us. It, uh, it helps us raise our profile, helps folks uh, find this kind of conversation like the one that we're hosting here. And now we hope you enjoy the interview with Jody Sparger. Jody Sparger, welcome to The Ferment. Thank you. Good to be here. Jody, you're a name I didn't I didn't know before I got into this uh this podcast. I have to thank uh, our producer Samantha to bringing you uh to our attention and um uh this this is a direct quote. This, Samantha saw you uh preach, heard you preach uh at a at an event in Winnipeg and she said, "Best sermon I've ever heard. Blew my mind." Um so and and uh, Samantha has uh, good taste in sermons and has heard. Uh, I know she's she's heard a few great preachers. So that's that's saying something. So we're we're just really excited to have you. That's very kind. It's uh, you know no good to start up with big expectations though. I needed a uh, a lower ex- <laughs> a lower bar to start with here. <laughs> it, it'll all be good. It'll all be good. <laughs> so Jody, we're going to start with a one a quote from you. Um. You say, I envy the Mennonite heritage 
of peacemaking and war resisting. I, however, come from a long line of brawlers and soldiers, and perhaps even more basically, I recognize violence running within me, ever-present and powerful. Any impulse toward peace is a work of the spirit and is an almost visceral experience of cool water poured over a blistering burn. Um, I, too, come from a history of violence, Scottish rebels and um, lots of uh, soldiers lost to so many wars. And I often feel like I have a warrior inside of me. Tell us about the people you come from those brawlers, those soldiers, what was your upbringing and how did you find your way into a vocation of peacemaking? And does the warrior in you get channeled into these initiatives? It's mm. a lot of good, good and important questions. Um, I want to say first that I am calling you and talking to you uh, on the traditional territory of the Stalo nation and I sit here looking at uh, looking at the mountains that rise out of that riverbed and so that is a there's a mm. new space that is shaping me I'm not normally in Stalo territory I'm normally in Musqueam Squamish Tsleil-Waututh territory but these uh, these mountains and this watershed certainly uh, root me in a particular way uh, my my ancestors, uh, just back to my great-grandparents, um, came to uh, south of this border, came to the U.S. Um, from Germany and from Finland and Sweden, and uh, came all of them as orphans um, oh. into what would be the, the territories of the uh, Dakota and the Lakota peoples and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho whose names they didn't know. Um, they came with this sense of promise of this empty land um, that wasn't empty at all, uh, but where they got a new start. Um, and part of that new start was every every male um, in my family from that point of landing on, on uh, these soils on um, enlisted in the military uh, in the U.S. Um, my brother is currently in the military in the U.S. So uh, it, it is it is normal and deep uh, in me uh, in, in my heritage that uh, military service is just assumed. Um, and then you know I've got some interesting characters who. Uh, who were more the brawler types. They also did their military time. Um, but uh, I once got pulled over for a rolling stop and the uh, the officer looked at my at my driver's license and said, Sparger, is that is in Grable, Wyoming, Sparger? And the sense of dread kind of uh, <laughs> hit my heart. <laughs> then she said, my, my grandfather, or my father was the uh, sheriff in Grable for many years. And Grable is a town of maybe 200. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that didn't that didn't go well for me. I paid for the sins of my ancestors in that ticket. But <laughs> <laughs> so, and then this question of whether or not um, whether or not that warrior side uh, feeds into the work that I do now um, is an excellent question, and maybe one I won't be able to answer until. 
further on looking back, right? The rearview mirror is always the, the best perspective on hmm. these kinds of questions. But um, I, th- I think actually, I think a stronger influence is, is uh, that experience of the spirit calming. Um, as described in in those words, that 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 actually leads to a more um, powerful, rooted, located space for me. Um, out of which I think, uh, I think rather than rather than warriorness, there is this tending, knitting. Um, and if you knew me in person, knitting is not an analogy that would uh, come naturally to me. But uh, but the tending, knitting, creating uh, energy, I I very much feel uh, as a work of the spirit, um, as opposed to my natural tendency, which where in that warriorness is displaced and is uh, unlocated and is r- wrestling with trying to find space and justification and uh, identity. Um, so I see them as I see them as opposite uh, in me at this stage of the game. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, you're you're speaking to your sense of of peace already. Uh, Sometimes you you reach for the word that comes to us from the the Jewish tradition of shalom, and I've I've read you saying that the the Hebrew word for peace shalom really means where nothing is missing and nothing is broken, and uh, and you use that that as a way of talking about peacemaking at the neighborhood level. Uh, I wonder if you could just talk about. Uh, your neighborhood and and your sense of what's missing and what's broken in your neighborhood and uh, and where do you see shalom uh, growing in your neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Some of that knitting and weaving together. Yeah. So um, I want to just note that uh, some some of the pieces that you've uh, you've read. Um, are located in the neighborhood of the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is not uh, not where I'm currently living, um, and that has to do with the <laughs> the violence of our land uh, as well. So so ended up being uh, a common word here in the Vancouver region is renovicted, uh, which means that you are put out of your home because of uh, supposed renovations. Sometimes renovations happen. Sometimes there's just an opportunity to raise the rent. Um, but I, I'm no longer in the downtown east side of Vancouver, but but in the east side uh, still. Um, and that experience for me is echoed in the lives of uh, of many of my um, my friends and folks who we journeyed with for many years from that neighborhood that that we have all been displaced. Many of us have been displaced from that neighborhood, um, and that neighborhood is uh, is notorious uh, at least across Canada. Um, as a yep. place that uh, most people would not associate with peace, and yet it is the space where um, where I think I've learned most deeply that uh, that place of 
um, attending to the to the missing and the broken and that those <laughs> uh, lots of people would assume that the missing and the broken are located in the poverty of that neighborhood but that actually is where I learned uh, I learned of Shalom coming right uh, hmm. That, hmm. That, that it's a space where um, there's no pretense and there's not the hiddenness uh, that that we operate with in much of the world um, where we can pretend things are okay, but really they're not. Nobody's pretending things are okay uh, in in the downtown east side or, or among folks who are particularly impacted by um, poverty and the who live in a particularly vulnerable way where the... Um, the forces of society that benefit some uh, disadvantage and oppress them. So there's there's no pretense that uh, if we play nicely, that it'll all um, oh. go well. Um, but those those have been the most honest people with whom I think I've ever um, journeyed. And, uh, and they're honest about their own struggles. They're honest about where... Uh, where life is broken, and they've taught me a ton just from their vantage point and their perspective uh, about about those forces that stay hidden uh, to me largely as a as a person of dominant culture and of um, education and privilege. Um, they they stay invisible to me if I stay in my natural spheres, um, but coming and being welcomed uh, into into family and relationship um, with my neighbors gave me this vantage point that I, I didn't have um, before. And their vision for what could be uh, is, is deeply rooted in what is, um, which is a real, hmm. which is a real gift. Um, but it's a painful gift too, right? Because it means there's a lot of loss and there's a lot of, um, outright oppression and injustice that that goes on Jody your um, your ministry is called healing at the wounded place what has it been like for you and others to name the church as a wounding place and also to intentionally make that wounding place a locus of healing mm, yeah um, I don't think I could have done this work. I know I couldn't have done this work, and I, I wouldn't have named this work uh, in this way apart from my experience with my neighbors in the downtown east side. Um, but part of their vulnerability and the hope and the power uh, for healing that came from their position uh, ins- inspires my sense of what could be what healing and justice coming um, could let could look like, um, and so naming the importance of naming the church as a wounding site. Um, we would much rather say, and it's often uh, mis misnamed as healing at the wounded place. We we're more comfortable with being wounded, perhaps, than being <laughs> uh, a perpetrator of <laughs> wounding. Um, <laughs> But it's when we can see that reality that uh, that the potential for something um, new and 
um, something that can be radically reformed, hopefully by the Spirit, uh, is possible. So, um, two, two images kind of inform that for me. One was I had a background for a while of, uh, working as a, uh, wilderness EMT. And, uh, in my training, one of my trainers talked about the importance of finding when someone's bleeding, finding the source of that wound. And he told a story of, uh, being on ski patrol and, uh, a woman running into a tree and she was bleeding in her leg and he applied general pressure because, you know, it's kind of embarrassing as a young man to figure out where the source of this bleeding was, uh, in her leg and she's got on her snowsuit and all of these sorts of things. And so he applies general pressure and they put her in the sled and they take her down to the bottom of the hill. And she had died by the time uh, they actually got to the bottom of the hill. And oh my gosh! so <laughs> a very stark reminder, the importance of facing the embarrassment of sorting out where is the life bleeding out of the body because if we can't if we don't attend to that very directly uh then then the life is gone and there's there's no chance for healing uh at the end of that so that that's one image um certainly that that just reminds me of the importance of us our knowing where where in our theology where in our practice of being church where in our ways of being in the world um have we managed to go so wrong because if we just say you know that was other people at another time mm. who didn't believe like i do um, we miss the opportunity to to sort out what uh, what is actually um, a, a poison in our um, in our body as the church. And where that came uh, clear to me was in conversation with um, a couple of conversations I've had with survivors of residential schools. Um, as an immigrant to Canada and as a, a pastor in a Baptist tradition. Um, I saw myself as outside of the residential school history, for example, right? I wasn't here. My denomination wasn't a big part of uh, running schools. Uh, I have friends who are Native people, so I want to and can be this bridge person. Um, I want to be the hero, really, is what that uh, meant under, mm. underneath. <laughs> um, but, but the generous and kind words of some survivors who came and said... You know, you see, you see yourself as separate, but the reality is that people who looked like you and who loved Jesus like you um, and who sounded like you came into my community and did great harm in the name of Jesus. Um, and if there is no one who can say, yes, it was, it was me, it was people like me then how can we be reconciled, right? Mm -hmm. So particularly uh, this elder who I was with in, in Whitehorse who said, we want to heal, but there, every time we go to knock on a door to say, with whom can we be reconciled? Everyone says, well, that wasn't me. Well, that wasn't us. Well, that wasn't, right? And she says, mm -hmm. but we can't move forward in our healing until there's someone with whom to be reconciled. 
Um, and so that's, that's also the gift and the opportunity that's been extended by indigenous people in this season where this, these stories of residential school, but also the legacy of colonization and its impacts in Canada. Um, that door has been opened for us to see that wounding and there's been an invitation, uh, to be people with whom to be reconciled. But that means taking seriously who we are in the story and identifying actually with with um, where harm and hurt has been done and continues to be done and a longing to um, to walk in a in a better way in a new way together. Um, and that's actually hmm. extraordinarily hopeful like when we do that like there are beautiful beautiful things that are emerging across the country as um as folks are willing to to enter into that journey just name some of those sure so it i mean it's everything from the the very the very small thing of a person-to-person interaction um where where an indigenous person who has a long history of being ignored and told in subtle and not subtle ways uh, that they they aren't fully human, that their perspective isn't valid, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. The, the impact of being listened to and, um, and welcomed to speak into uh, the life of faith communities, not as a person of faith necessarily, but like, tell, tell us, tell us what you see of us. Tell us how you, um, might invite us to move into a more whole, um, way of being. And just, just that act of, um, of lifting up those voices and as non-Indigenous people, uh, listening to voices we are not accustomed to giving space and priority to um, has mm. been mutually transformative um, for for communities to just see see possibilities of connection um, moving forward um, down to to practical things of how how might we uh, love our neighbors better when our neighbor uh, on reserve is experiencing, um, you know, a 40-year boil water advisory, and my mm. faith community goes to uh, Honduras every year to do water projects in Honduras. What might it look like for me mm. to be neighbors with this neighbor right here? Not mm. not to fix, right? Um, but but what does it mean for us to reorient our um, perspective on how we might, um, how we might inhabit this space together in a, in a new way with real brokenness and real missing gaps, um, that, that need shalom healing, right? Um, that sometimes mm-hmm. is really practical. Um, yeah. and I think another really risky area where I'm seeing, um, seeing some beautiful things emerge uh, we've we've started to link the legacy of residential schools uh, with the ongoing overrepresentation of Indigenous people in foster care. Um, mm, I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, wow. and and it is challenging for 
folks who are currently foster parents, right, to mm. face the idea that this, that what they're doing uh, out of out of care and love in their hearts might be a part of a system that uh, that is that's rotten at its core, that it continues to perpetuate um, violence to families. Um, people who are willing to to look at that and say, "Hmm, how how might I care for these kids uh, who I who I love and have sacrificed lots for, et cetera, et cetera? How could I um, how could I, with this new understanding of th- these connections, how might I learn to love their family? How might I learn to um, participate in?" Uh, a new way that we might come alongside um, one another. Um, so, so some some churches who have started to say how how could we as faith communities come alongside uh, indigenous families and support them who we're, we're already connected with. Um, mm. Through, through foster care relationships, but how might we give the power back to families, um, in, um, in being able to, so, so the families from which these, uh, kids have come, so that that family might be strengthened, not just that we're, we have any sense of rescuing the kid out of their family, because, oh, drat, that's that same narrative that's gotten us into, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yep. trouble yeah. that we've been in. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, it's early days, but, um, but there are these little bloomers, uh, along the way of asking new questions and daring, daring to ask really hard questions that strike close to our hearts, right? I really appreciate both the, the gentleness, Jody, with which you name, uh, that this is an issue that touches people like foster parents and even social workers that are engaging in these systems Absolutely. with, yeah. you know, tremendous dedication. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, in my current work, I, I'm associated with a, uh, an Indigenous-led family reunification project and certainly an Indigenous community, the continuity between the one project that yeah. purportedly for their own good rescued uh, Indigenous children uh, from their homes and the other, it's uh, it's, it's an uh, arbitrary it's the same training. project. Yeah, uh, and and it it it, it is stri- striking how how difficult it is and how how rare it is to name that continuity mm-hmm. uh, when we're you know in a time when when we're you know at least some of us have have pretty enthusiastically embraced apology and repentance for. For the church-run residential schools, yeah. um, but but for the most part, there's a there's a a huge silence about uh, how very similar the dynamics are yeah. uh, of of well-meaning white folks uh, coming in to take indigenous kids out of their out of their homes. Yeah. So and, yeah. And benefiting financially Amen. from that, right? Like th- yes, that, yeah. that the amount yeah. the amount of money that an indigenous 
family who is on social assistance, the amount they get for a kid versus the amount that uh, I could get for a kid, a kid in my care as a foster parent, um, is, is sometimes three to four times the amount, right? And how is that? Wow. How does that system, yeah. <laughs> how does that bring wholeness and healing, right? Yeah, and for for me too, um, I grew up as a biological child in a foster home, mm-hmm. and so it's hits home talking a lot about this. And for me, the getting back to that wounded place, like um, the initiatives that are happening that really strike home to me, who as someone who was haunted by birth mothers my whole life, yeah. Um, who didn't feel confident enough to enter the front door, you know, always mm-hmm. felt they should come through the back door. And it's just so indicative of, you know, what happens when you control um, people's food and their children. <laughs> yep. um, but the, for me, like, um, there's initiatives like um, Indigenous Birth of Alberta, where it's starting kind of Prior to the birth of the child, the mm-hmm. mothers are getting support, you know, and the initiative Marcus is connected to. It's like um, Indigenous-run um, support for uh, families that might be at risk um, for this whole thing to just keep perpetuating. All right, halftime. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case. Pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. I was going to ask you, Jody, uh, and this is kind of in keeping with this too, because I think as we look at the full picture and, you know, see the correlation between uh, residential school, 60s scoop, millennial scoop, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you name it, um, the, the, there are levels almost to our repentance in terms of just being able to see, yet like there's almost like layers that have to come off and um, you, off of our eyes, scales mm-hmm. have to keep falling. And um, you tell a story of um, the transformation of a local pastor who came to repent of his racism and um, the way that transformation changed the relationship between that church and and an indigenous neighbor. Can you can you elaborate on that story? Sure. So, um, so the the basics of that are uh, 
a pastor who came to me post TRC who said uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings here in Vancouver and said, you know, you invited me to come and um, to to hear the testimonies and the stories. And I said that our church didn't need to be involved. And and uh, he said, and I've come come to realize that that um, that is that was rooted in my sin of racism and my reluctance to be there and be part of this conversation. Um, and. And then he said, but, but can, is there, like, is there time left? Is there an opportunity still to, uh, to get in on this, this story? And how do I, how do I challenge that racism within me? Um, how can my congregation be engaged differently? And so that over a number of years, um, led to this, to this deep relationship with, uh, with a neighbor who kind of like the foster parents that or not the foster parents, the birth parents that you named Alana, uh, who would come to the door of the church, uh, and drop her kids off for Sunday school, but would never cross that threshold. And, um, and as they, they started to journey with her, their eyes were opened. The scales came off of their eyes as they, uh, began to see different systems at play, um, again, working against this single mom and her kids. Uh, the, the pastor called me at one point in this journey and said, I used to think that I knew who the good guys and the bad guys were. And that's all turned <laughs> on its head as I, you know, as I walk from the perspective of my, my neighbor and my new friend, right? Um, and that's, you know, that challenges our whole sense of creating the world and good guys and bad guys uh, in the first place, right? <laughs> and uh, how do we, how do we figure out how we address the bad guy uh, in all of us that shows up moment to moment, right? Um, but, but part of the resolution uh, of of that story was. Um, was a deep healing, a deep shalom that came. Uh, this this neighbor um, called me and asked me to come and be a part of that church's Sunday gathering um, one morning. And and uh, when we got through the announcements and kind of the order of things uh, in the church service, she stood up. And they'd learned enough to uh, to let her stand up and do what she was going to do, and uh, <laughs> and she came forward and and had her only her only spare blanket, and she um, draped it over the shoulders of the pastor, and she took her only coat and draped it over the shoulders of the pastor's wife, and said, "I wish I had enough blankets for all of you." Um, but you have listened to me, you have walked with me, you have loved me and my children, and I want to just acknowledge today that by blanketing your your pastor and his wife, hmm. your your leaders, that you have become family, you have all become family um, with me. Hmm. Well, that's a profound, profound mm-hmm. um, moment of, of healing and of transformation from someone who had vowed to never cross the threshold of a church because, um, because of what had happened to her 
uh, her grandmother and her mother and her father and her grandfather in residential schools. Um, and it's interesting to note that she didn't, part of, part of that journey for that church was not saying, here's why you should cross this threshold. No one actually ever <laughs> invited her to cross that threshold, but they, they crossed out of the threshold of the church and went into her world. And she naturally, mm. as that bond c- continued and grew, she naturally came across the threshold uh, into the church. But I think for for people of faith, we too often want uh, people to come into our space um, mm-hmm. to make things right. Yeah. We don't realize how much power and control and um, mm. how many memories and how many triggers there are on our walls with mm. everything from a... You know, from a picture of Jesus that that someone looked at while they were abused, that you know that we see in this favorable way, and uh, and is is terribly traumatic for that individual. Um, so we we have to, um, and we have the resources within us to get out of our cross over the threshold of our. Uh, our churches are safe places um, to be in in spaces that are uncomfortable and are unfamiliar and where we don't know the cues of what you're supposed to do and not do and all of those sorts of things. But that's that's the land in which um, healing and justice and right relationship can begin to come. Um, well, Jody, along those lines, uh, you recently uh, went out to the uh, the resistance camp at uh, Wet'suwet'en, uh, for for folks who haven't been following that story, what's what's happening there? Yeah, so that uh, there's been some in the in the news, but I want to back up a little bit before that uh, newsworthy stuff. But the the Unistoten camp up in Wet'suwet'en territory. Uh, is an initiative of um, of indigenous peoples on on that land to uh, to seek healing for their community and for others as well, and uh, and they've been uh, re re inhabiting some territories, some of their traditional territories, um, by building houses and a healing center um, on that territory um, and on. On this, the um, coordinates where some pipelines were scheduled to come, that they knew that there were hopes for pipelines to come through there, and they knew decades ago that um, that that was something that they wanted to resist, and that the best way to resist that might be uh, to to show that. For example, the land is not empty, which is one of the narratives that mm. we get to, uh, that we have running in the back of our minds that goes all the way back to uh, papal bulls from the 1400s. Um, that the land is not empty and that it is inhabited for for good and useful purposes. And so they've built homes in this healing center um, on the land. And I've, I've had opportunity to... Um, to be up there and um, to work with them uh, in in building those homes in that that healing center, and uh, and went actually at the initiative of some kids um, who were in my community 
um, who had been doing a story. They'd actually been doing the story of um, of Samson, and uh, we're seeing some parallels between the Unistoten and uh, and that biblical story. And really wanted to go up and visit, and so we went up and just cleared. Um, cleared brush and did did some of the dirty work uh, up there for for a summer um but what happened in the in the meantime is that uh the court the courts set an injunction for uh the gas line folks to come through and to do a survey of the territory in preparation for um for the pipelines coming through. And there's been lots of conversation in the news around um, around whether or not that injunction was um, legal, whether the laws of Canada are what should be dominant here in granting, um, granting this injunction, or if the laws of the Wet'suwet'en, which are defended in the uh, 1997 Delgamook decision, that basically said that the Wet'suwet'en, very specifically, and the Gixan, um, that their right and title to their land was never extinguished um, by the fact that Canada sort of said, hey, this is now our territory. That that didn't um, then, in fact, make it uh, Canadian territory, that their their right and title still uh, persisted. Hmm. Um and so it's a battle between, uh, in some ways, between these two laws, the laws of Canada dominant here, or or are they a sovereign nation whose um, sovereignty has never actually been uh, extinguished? And um, the Unistoten and the Wet'suwet'en people have been fighting, fighting this battle on both fronts. And so there, uh, the injunction was came down from the courts and they immediately filed in the Canadian court system uh, a challenge to that injunction. Um, but before their court date for that challenge could come up, uh, the RCMP and the, and the gas line folks actually um, enforced their injunction. So they took a legal route, but that legal route was circumvented by, um, by action being taken mm. ahead of time. And uh, and a peaceful, <clears throat> just like when we cross the border into the into the U.S. or into any country, we cross through a checkpoint, right? And we answer the questions of the guard there. And for um, for many years, you pass into that territory, and there's a checkpoint, and you're asked, um, "Why why are you here? What have you come for?" And um, sometimes you're allowed in, and sometimes you're not allowed in. Just like sometimes I'm allowed across certain borders, and sometimes I'm not, right? Um, and so a, a checkpoint was set up, and the gas line was the gas line folks were not being allowed to um, move into that area, um, and the RCMP then came in and um, forcibly. Um, made their way across uh, that checkpoint barricade. Um, so they did that with a great deal of force. I was up the day that the barricade was um, was broached. Uh, there, there. <laughs> never in Canada have I seen so much um, show of force anywhere. 
Mm. Um, mm. I was in the 7-Eleven in Houston, B.C., which is, uh, you know, the size of most 7-Elevens. And uh, I'm in there with 20, uh, 20 RCMP officers who are in full, like, combat body armor wear with guns on their hips and uh, shoulders, and, you know, and they're just, they're just off getting their coffee and their Slurpee or whatever. Um, but they're there. And uh, we were able to bring out breakfast the next morning after the, after the barricade uh, came down, we brought breakfast out to folks who were still out um, at that checkpoint, just trying to bear witness to what was was happening, and uh, and there were at least three kilometers worth of, um, of militarized vehicles that were on the logging road out there. Um, so this great show of force against uh, a, a peaceful resistance. Um, and what's happened in the days since has included, uh, you know, the bulldozing of huge tracts of land that the Wet'suwet'en say this was not in the um, purview of the injunction. It's destroyed trap lines and traditional ways that they um, are sustaining themselves and that are part of their healing center and their um the the process of healing for folks who come out to be on the land in the healing center um so it's a it is a great it's a great travesty um and it is this moment where the there is a question in the minds of most indigenous people like are are canadians um actually interested in reconciliation and the the actions that are happening um, up there would say we're not, uh, that our actions are, are counter to what the rhetoric has been. Um, and this is kind of gas lines aside, like it's, it, uh, there's a matter of, of sovereignty and of, um, protection for the thriving, um, and healing of, of the people. Um, on the land. So there are a lot of um, areas of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which Canada has mm -hmm. uh, adopted in principle, that are being violated. The removal of people from their territory, which happened um, when the when the barricades came down. Some really just ugly stuff uh, about... Uh, there was a death in the community um, the weekend before uh, the, the RCMP action. And uh, so people were being allowed to come out to attend funerals and feasts. They're, if they came out, they were not being allowed to go back to their homes uh, in the territory. And that's just, like, that's just gross, mm. right? Like, why would you make people have to choose between whether or not to honor their loved one and gather in this, in grief and... Um, ceremony why would you make them choose between that and staying and um just trying to occupy their territory like stay in their home um so yeah it's a it is it's fallen off of our news cycle um but but it's actually getting worse and worse the actions that are being uh, taken against the Wet'suwet'en and like I said they they are fighting on a variety of levels they're fighting and challenging things in the courts but those are very slow processes and in the meantime 
um, vast tracts of land are just being bulldozed, um, mm. Mm. which is, yeah, which is heartbreaking and um, really brutal. Let me just say one more thing uh, about that, that there, there has been lots of talk about um, that consent was given by um, indigenous communities. And, and there are some folks who are doing a good job of unpacking um, what that consent has been about. But that consent has come from, from band councils, which are a structure of um, Canada's imposition on indigenous communities about how they are to um, make decisions. That Canada said, you have to set up this band council system, and this is the group with whom we will negotiate and uh, dispense funds and um, do any of yep. the relating state to state with this, um, with these band councils. Hereditary chiefs. <coughs> Um, hold responsibility for, um, for the territory and for, um, the way in which life happens, um, within the community and what the, what the boundaries of, um, of good activities, um, and what the negotiations should be between, um, between indigenous groups, between, um, sovereign nations and, um, the nation of Canada, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this is, this is part of what's being pitted. These two sides are being pitted against one another. Um, are we, are we talking about the colonial structure of band councils or are we talking about the hereditary chief's, uh, authority in, in these matters? Um, and how uh, even agreements that were made, many of the agreements that were put in place, um, were made before the UN Declaration was adopted by Canada. They were made before um, Trudeau said, we, we want to change the relationship with Indigenous people. So this has become, mm -hmm. uh, a, you know, an opportunity to test some of that rhetoric and um, and it's... It's been found to to be just that rhetoric and and not uh, substantive change. Yeah, what your the that that kind of divide and conquer tactic that you're speaking to for me it it just was a a big deja vu for uh, I I had a job for a while here in Manitoba with uh, it was called the Interfaith Task Force on Northern Hydro Development, uh, Jody, and it was. Uh, uh, came out of a long-standing uh, church-based uh, network between the south and the north of the province and, and between settler communities and indigenous communities dating back to the, the, the massive hydro projects of the, of the 70s, the Churchill River Diversion um, and, uh, and Genpeg uh, blocking the outlet of, of Lake Winnipeg um, wreaked massive environmental havoc with... Uh, with indigenous communities and trap lines and campsites and burial grounds, etc., mm -hmm. and uh, and in the seventies, indigenous resistance was was virtually unanimous. And when I was when I was working in the early two thousands, what had happened was uh, a number of the the First Nation councils had taken had taken settlements. Some were even partnering on new hydro developments, but there were still. I mean, the environmental damage continues, and there's still people that 
uh, f- from up north that want the south to know about those damages. But it, we we had the the people who were my bosses were you know people that cut their teeth when the project was forming in the seventies and there was there was very much this kind of let's be a voice for the voiceless um, was kind of the the mantra that that they had uh, and it, it was just very confusing for us when uh, all of a sudden there was official indigenous leadership that was uh, showing up at at meetings with hydro and basically telling us well-meaning whiteies to butt out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so then we were, uh, we, we all, all, you know, this kind of clear cut, uh, stand for environmental justice. You know, we suddenly found ourselves embroiled in this, in this family feud that we just didn't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that project kind of, uh, closed in on itself uh, not too many years after uh, I I went on to other, other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just, I want, like, I think you've, you, you've cl- clearly laid out a sense of the historic context uh, of this conflict. Um, I just wonder, I mean, so that's, that's informing how you're, you're deciding to stand, but it, it does seem to me that in situations like this, one, one does need one's own, uh, moral center, uh, to, to tune into in terms of how one decides which voices to amplify, uh, and, and who one makes one's stand with, uh, if, if one isn't going to get too lost in the, uh, the controversies, um, that are internal. Um, so yeah, I just wonder how, how you, how you make those decisions, Jody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for, for me, um, it's important to prioritize, um, <laughs> well, who who is it who says always always look for the money, right? Where did the money mm. come from? Who's it benefiting? Um, what what might be being perverted because of um, how the money is or isn't coming, right? Um, yeah. And so, who doesn't have a, a vested financial interest in uh, sorting out what's what's happening here? Um, and so that's been important for me. I actually had the opportunity uh, to to drive up to um, Unistoten with with a Wet'suwet'en woman who um, who was raised by her grandparents in the territory, and her grandparents were um, her grandmother was a was a hereditary chief. And, um, and she remembers as, as a young child traveling between communities to talk about, to sit at her grandparents' uh, feet as they, they sat with other indigenous leaders to talk about what was happening in their territory, um, Mm. and how they might make compromises and what, what might need to be done there. And she's not uh, she's not a particularly old person, right? Um, and but she has that memory still of that 
um, that way of deciding things and, and making things happen being done and that, that being a positive and healthy, helpful, um, process. Um, I think it's also important to say that, uh, I, for as long as I have lived in Canada, I have lived on unceded, um, territory in British Columbia. And I think there are some other rules that guide our relationship when we're living in treaty territory. Um, that there are, it's important for us to acknowledge that, um, again, I think particularly as people of faith, um, to acknowledge that we are, uh, treated people when we live in those territories, that treaty goes both ways and that, uh, for the most part, settler folks have not known what the treaties are. Um, we've not known what it is to keep our side of those treaties. Um, and I think in treaty territory, some of the dynamics around band council maybe are different. It would need to be folks who are in that context who would, who would speak to that. But in the unceded territory of, uh, of BC and unceded just meaning that, uh, this land hasn't been given in war or by agreement. Um, that, uh, and and because there's been precedent in the Chilcotin case and in the Dalgamuk cases that uh, that there is a recognition of indigenous um, sovereignty in this in this territory um, that 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 calls a particular um, a particular set of relational dynamics into play. And, uh, it delegitimizes especially the band council system, um, in this territory because there wasn't acquiescence to that system. Um, and so for, for me, that, um, the, the voices of those hereditary, um, chiefs are, are really critical, um, in that relationship. And again, as a, as a person of, as a person of faith who is in, in my journey, in our journey of, uh, acknowledging the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as a framework for how we might make a new way forward. I think things like pre-prior, prior, free, prior and informed consent, um, not removing Indigenous people from the land, um, uh, respecting the the customs and practices, which is part of why that story about um, about funerals and and uh, ceremony mm-hmm. being part of what was um, a, a, <laughs> it was a card in the game uh, being played. Um, I think that's part of why that's particularly problematic um, in mm-hmm. in that dynamic. And I'm not a huge, like, we must follow the mandates of the United Nations in general person. But the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People was created by Indigenous peoples um, themselves uh, from around the world. And um, with great in- intentionality and with... Um, with broad experience of indigenous communities who are impacted in some of these same ways. And so when we're seeing that happening in our state, um, we would readily condemn it in another state's actions. Um, mm. but, yeah. but all the more important for us to say, Hey, hold on, 
what's what's happening here? We've said that that we're committed to this. Part of being committed to that means learning a new way to operate and not business as usual. Um, and I think that's um, you know I have some dear friends who who work in resource extraction, and they're like, this is really confusing. I don't know how to navigate my way through this. Um, because we did have these conversations and we thought we had those agreements. Um, but to say, you know, the, the, the conversation is, is shifted. We're in a new era. And the question is, can we shift that conversation? We can't actually rely on the old conversations that have happened. Um, just like we can't, uh, we can't have said in the 1940s, how come indigenous people didn't make a claim to their land? Well, because they weren't allowed to. Um, because my friend who sat with her, with her grandparents talking about how they were going to negotiate things between nations, that that was actually an illegal act at that time, that they weren't allowed to gather to talk about, um, things that had to do with their land, right? So that was, that was an act of subversion, um, of business as usual. So we, we can't, we aren't playing by the old rules, um, or we are playing by the old rules. We need to stop playing by the old rules and um, find new new ways of existing in this moment together. That's some really helpful history and context. And yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one last question, Jody, and this sort of ties into this. But I've I've noticed that you've mentioned a number of times through this process that you see yourself as a person of faith and and how that kind of informs your actions as well. And you make ties between the encampment and Jesus' teaching of the wise and foolish builder, which then leads into a surprising affirmation of the religious other. Do you want to kind of close talking about that? Sure. Um, I think for, for me, um, (laughs) for me in my journey of, of trying to be a person who follows the way of Jesus, that I always need to be open to the, the challenge of the other and that the, um, the ways that historically uh, the church has used the biblical text, for example, is that we, we usually use it to be on our side and to defend why we are, um, we are right and we have God on our side. And, uh, and I don't think that actually is a, um, is a true reflection of what the biblical narrative itself does, that the biblical narrative is constantly uh, challenging the person who feels like God is on their side and, uh, and, and that the, the way of righteousness is, uh, is with them, that it's always mm. challenging, uh, that self-righteous attitude in any of us, mm. uh, to be mm. questioned and to realize that, no, no, God is, God is bigger and is inviting inviting more and has always been about uh, the thriving of all the peoples of the earth. Um, That the blessing to Abraham was meant to be a blessing to 
all the nations. And um, regardless of our heritage, are we are we extending and expanding blessing, uh, or are we um, or are we using a sword with one hand and um, and making an invitation with the other hand? Um, so I I am deeply compelled by um, by the work of the Unistoten in in building homes and in seeking peace in their territory. And they may or may not share my um, religious convictions. Um, they may or may not um, f- follow the way of Jesus. But they have always been generous in their invitation and expansion of well-being, their desire for wholeness and healing and well-being um, doesn't just end with their own territories, um, but actually presses out, um, and even even on the even on the line. Even as I've uh, as I was at the um, the checkpoint in, in following days. They continue to say, even to the RCMP officers who come uh, in their battle fatigues over um, and across and into their territory, even to the uh, to the f- folks who are coming to do the survey work for for the pipeline, extend over and over again this uh, this affirmation. Don't you know that we love you? And we long for what is best for the next generations that will come after us. We, we are doing this. We are standing here because of your grandchildren also. Um, and that, mm. that posture of blessing, but also, uh, standing firmly in, uh, in their traditions and their truth as they understand it, um, but extending that generosity is, is, um, is gospel proclaimed more powerfully, uh, in my experience there than often I've ever seen gospel proclaimed, um, in the walls of a church. Um, and maybe that challenges our walls. <laughs> um, again, church needs to move beyond our walls and, uh, find ways that we seek the, the shalom of God in every place and every time. Uh, and that, that comes with blessing and it comes with generosity and it comes um, with an extending of, of ourselves. Um, yeah, I am, I have been deeply, uh, been deeply touched and deeply transformed by the generosity of indigenous people who were able to see past harms done to them uh, in the name of the principles that I hold very dearly to myself, but who've been able to see my humanity um, past those principles and to call me forth into something more. Um, and my longing is that that um, as, as people of faith and as people outside of Christian faith that we might um, 
we might be able to respond to those calls, which I believe are always gospel call and often come perhaps um, at critical junctures, come from outside of the faith community, <laughs> sometimes more than from inside. Yeah. We, we've fallen into the habit of closing with a, a blessing. I'm not quite sure how we started it, but it was, it, it was a good thing. And, and now we just, we just do this. Mm. Um, so we've, we have a blessing for you that we would like to close with, mm. if that's all right. Thank you, yes. Jody Sparger, preacher of the word. Practitioner of the word, we bless you. We bless the house that you are building. With your friends on the solid rock. When the flood comes and when the torrent crashes against it. May it stand, may it stand, may it stand. Peace be with you, sister. Mm -hmm. And with you. Thanks so much for this. Oh, thank, yeah, thank you. you. We'll uh, hear from you again, I'm sure. Our paths will cross. Good. Bye-bye. Christ, I'm in it all. I'm suffering when you're suffering. If I'm in Christ, I'm in it all. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of the cross. If I'm in Christ, I'm in it all. If I'm in Christ, I'm in it all. I am alone when you're alone. If I'm in Christ, I'm in it all. trouble when you're in trouble if I'm in Christ I'm in it all this is the way of the cross this is the way of the cross if I'm in Christ for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. 
peace and all good. 